So we're in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And last week, we, I'll read very briefly, or talk very briefly about what we talked about last, last week in regards to everybody having everything in common. And what that meant was, is that the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And they all said that not any of the things that they had belonged to, uh, belonged to his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection. And so there wasn't a needy person because each person who had money and was able to buy land and purchase it uh, did so. And those who had the money then after, who sold the land, put it at the apostles' feet. And so there was a man that we know of whose name was Barnabas. And he, uh, which means son of encouragement, he was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And he sold that field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So a couple things we saw there. One is, everybody had everything in common. Two, everybody saw that there was a need and they saw that their unity in the gospel meant that they needed to express that through worship and giving and serving and selling what they had in order to serve other people. Another thing we see is what's the main reason, which is to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the last thing we see is an example of that one named person, Barnabas, who didn't have to sell the land, but he did anyway. But his name means son of encouragement, not because he knew that my name means son of encouragement, I have to do this. It was just that everything he did reflected that and that he was an encourager by his example, by serving other people. So now we come to Acts 5. And the scriptures say this, but. Now, whenever a scripture says but, there's usually something that we're thinking, hmm, there's a contrast or there's a comparison coming up. But here we see that there's going to be a contrast. Acts 5, verse 1. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, the profits, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you see the contrast. Barnabas, he sold the land he had and brought all the proceeds and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, he sells the piece of property and he brings only part of it and lays it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias as he did that, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. So Peter knows how much the land was worth, what the value was. He also knew what the land would sell for. And so he's counting the money at his feet and thinking, hmm, this is not adding up to what I know to be true. Something's up. Why is this person not giving the same amount of money that everybody else has been giving in the same pattern? So you see here, verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's talking to him. He's asking him another question. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So that's the third question. Fourth question, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? Why is it you have planned this in your own heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So that's the summary statement from Peter to Ananias. You've not lied to me, but you've lied to God. I could care less about how much you brought here, but because it reflects what your heart is saying towards God, that's a concern of mine. So that's why I'm asking these questions. So he's summarizing uh, what's happening by saying, you lied not to me, but to God. 
Then verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. So he dies. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. All those who were in the midst and all those who are part of the church and those who had connections with those in the church who may not have been believers. At verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. These young men probably were people who were disciples of the apostles, perhaps young men in training to take over as leaders. And they grab the body of the individual and take him out. Why did they do that? Probably immediately they realized the judgment of God had just came upon this person's life. They wanted to remove everything about the sinfulness that was in their midst. Verse 7. After an interval about three hours. So there's a time period, a break where nothing's going on from Ananias to Sapphira. And then after three hours, his wife comes in. She came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So Peter knows the amount and he asked her point blank, just get straight to the point. Not, hey, how are you? How was your day? What did you eat today? What did you do? How did you, uh, you know, how did you do on your test? He says, no, tell me how much the land was worth and what you sold it for. Peter says to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes. For so much, she admits, I, we sold it for this amount. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? So this wasn't just Ananias' plan. This was Ananias and Sapphira together, married couple, working together, contrived plan against the spirit of the Lord. But Peter says something different. He says, how is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Because Peter says to Ananias, your main uh, sin here is not that you've lied to me, it's that you've lied to God. But he's saying to her, you're testing the spirit of the Lord. So is there a difference in the two? We'll talk about that. So behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. So she dies. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So this account of Ananias and Sapphira is a complete opposite account of the one we read in the previous chapter about Barnabas. But I believe that this written account by Luke by Luke uh, of Ananias and Sapphira it reveals four things. The holiness of God, the corrupt nature of the sinful heart, it reveals the righteous judgment of God... And it reveals the seriousness by which the early church took what happened. So let's look at the two cases. One is, and let's consider these aspects in the first part, verse 1 through 6. Ananias lies to God. The second part is, Sapphira tests the spirit of the, tests the Holy Spirit. Are they two opposites? Are they two different sins? No. But the same ordeal comes from the same human corrupt heart. Luke implicates here in verse 1 through 6, in other words, implies that Ananias' leadership failure in this text is huge. Now, Jason was, because of today and Jason was praying, this actually fits in well because of Father's Day here in Brazil. In that, Ananias is an example of an individual who failed in his leadership, not only in his marriage, but in his family. Because why? We, see, we are seeing him... We contriving a plan, planning something 
with his wife in order to profit off of the resources that God had bestowed upon him so that he might be a blessing to those who don't have much. But what we're seeing here is this. Ananias leading his wife in sin. Ananias leading his wife in deception. Ananias leading Sapphira in the things that are not of God. And so Ananias, I believe, did not wake up that day and say, uh, I'm going to decide, we're going to rob God, we're going to lie to God, and then as we're lying and we've deceived our own selves because of our sin, we're going to test the Holy Spirit of God and presume that God's kindness will still be there with us in this. And at the same time, trying to appear generous to those who are around them in the early church. But I believe no sin, uh, no, that sin that gave birth to death over a large amount of time. So, for example, an individual does not wake up one day and say, uh, I, will, um, I will go and rob that bank. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen. I mean, that's a humongous leap for an individual who's that corrupt to go from step one, just robbing somebody's purse, to going and robbing a bank. It's huge. There's a, a long-term pattern of sinful habits that aren't dealt with, not by the believer, but also by the unbeliever. And so it's the same way with our grotesque sins that we hear about, the most hideous ones, such as a rape or such as somebody... Um, uh, uh, frauding somebody, stealing money or laundering or perhaps insider trading in the business world. All sorts of sins that are, that are huge that we read about and we hear about. They just don't, people just don't wake up and do those things that day that they thought about. There's a long-term pattern of sinful habits that have been going on in Ananias and Sapphira's heart. Their love for money instead of a love for God was completely apparent. They loved the created things more than the creator. John Owen, uh, he says it best like this. I think this is uh, something for us to remember. It says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen is probably, uh, should be our chief mentor for sanctification. When I say sanctification, uh, it means that uh, God making us more like his son Jesus Christ day by day, conforming us into his image. And so sanctification is a process for the believer and that our journey with Christ is an ongoing daily basis where we need to remember the gospel and apply the gospel to our lives. You know, in James 1... Uh, 12 through 15, it says, But each person is tempted, uh, 14 through 15, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so it all begins with the desires of our hearts. That's why Psalm 37, 4, it says continually, Give me the desires of uh, of your heart, Lord. Continually conform me to your image, so that the desires of my heart might be your desires, and that I'll put sin away. So the ultimate goal of Ananias and Sapphira was no longer God and His glory, but money. So I think there's a misunderstanding here of, of Ananias that we see in their view of salvation, their view of the Christian life, is that uh, the indicatives of the gospel and what we call the imperatives of the gospel, in other words, the truths of the gospel and the commands of the gospel, they're more interested in getting something from God than honestly understanding and knowing and believing the truth of God 
So there's a misunderstanding. They're getting them backwards. What that means basically is they're viewing what I do and who I am earns me my salvation versus what's already been done. So the imperative is I'm going to do things and then God will love me because of that. I'm going to give money to the poor and because of that I will appear generous and God will love me in the, in, in the end. And that's just not true. That's not what the Bible is saying. So how much of the proceeds uh, were actually uh, um, given and laid at their, their feet? Well, we don't know specific, specific amounts, but we can infer that it was not the majority, obviously. It was just partial. Uh, they were still seeking to be generous to the early church and what they did, but inwardly they were planning their own, in their own sinfulness about what they would do with the money. Uh, even though the text does not mention what they're planning to do with the money, we can definitely infer, in other words, we can grab a hold that their motivation from the heart was not to sell the property completely. So I think and believe here that we can know uh, a truth about God in this text is that God knows our hearts. God knows the things in our hearts that we try to hide. There's nothing that we can do uh, that God does not already know. There is nothing that God doesn't already see in our lives already. The Bible says this in uh, Job seven seventeen to twenty. What is man that you make so much of him, uh, and that you set your heart on him, uh, visit with him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? <laughs> if I sin. What do I do to you? You watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Now Job's talking in reference to you know everything about me, everything I do. Uh, in Job 31, 4, it says, Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? So that's God talking to man. He knows everything about us. Uh, it also says here in Psalm 139, David says, where shall I go from your spirit, and where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there, and if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You and I, we cannot hide anything from God. And Peter asks a series of questions to Ananias to point out the sin was not that they kept the money back, but that they lied to God. That's it. They lied to God. God's holiness and his name are at stake here. And so in this text, we see that the keeping of the money, it was just what we call smokescreen. It wasn't the real thing that was at stake. It wasn't the main thing. It was the fruit of what really was taking place within their hearts. And that's why Peter says, and is telling Ananias, that Satan filled your heart to lie to God. Now, let's talk about that for a second. When it says here in verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. When he says filled, he's really meaning tempted. Why has Satan tempted your heart? Filled your heart with a lie. Tempted you to disbelieve what God has done for you and the implications of that. So how does, I think there's a question we have to, to really wrestle with here. But I think we can continually wrestle with it, fight with it, and, and try and figure it out all through our lives. But how does Satan really influence us to do evil? I think we can learn from what Kistemacher says here. He says, Sin is a mystery that causes man to act irrationally without a real proper cause. If Ananias had been honest and forthright, he would have known that the property 
And after that sale, the money belonged to him as long as it was in his possession. He could do it as he pleased and would be under no obligation. However, he permitted Satan to test his heart, refused to worship God, and made money the object of his worship. So while serving his idol, which was the money... He nevertheless desired the praise of he desired the praise of God's people for his de, described generosity. And so, in other words, Ananias desired still the praise of man while he was trying to serve God. And we can see here that this is hypocrisy. It's important to see that God doesn't like hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy in general, but he really hates deliberate hypocrisy, which is. I love you, God, but I love money too, and I'm going to give you everything. I'm not going to pray about this. I'm only going to keep part of it. So think about this right now. You think maybe by what you do or how much you have or what you give to God or to the church, you think maybe I'm a generous person. And God's really saying to you right now that you're not a generous person. You're not a generous person with your time or with your money or with your talents. I don't think it really need to set this on just money. I think we're talking about time and talents. I think and I believe that as churches, we need to be generous corporately for other people, for other things, for other resources, for, for other ministries, things beyond us so that the kingdom might be expanded. That's why I applaud whenever we want to be generous and be sacrificial. That's a good thing because that stretches us. And it helps test whether or not our affections are set on us rather than on God. If you look at a church's budget and you say, can we see if you're able to do that? You would probably see that most churches, America, Brazil, whatever, in open societies, they tend to give really the majority of it towards themselves versus towards expanding the kingdom. What I would call maybe a 30-70% kind of point of view. When really, God really wants us to be giving at least 51% or more towards the nations. And I think that's a minimum, but maximum giving most of it that we can towards expanding God's kingdom. Now, we don't need to be legalistic and set numbers and percentages, and that's how what it is and what it needs to be. But it really should test our hearts and decide how much are we keeping for ourselves when we need to be serving other people and giving our resources away to expand God's kingdom. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is, is that men need to lead their wives and their families in the truth of God. I fail at that uh, at, at many points. I need to do better. I know all men in here need to be doing that better. But I believe what Jason was saying is correct. Uh, if you can get the man, you can get the family. Because the Bible speaks more uh, indicatives about men who live lives worthy of the gospel so that the imperatives for the families give, get, get lived out. Because men are called to lead those things in their families. Wives are called to submit to everything in their husbands, but are not called to follow their husbands into sin. So we can see another example. Sapphira, she didn't say no to Ananias. She agreed to the sin. So we can see that God is calling wives to submit to their husbands and their leadership. But when their husbands are living in sin and are continually not following the gospel, they're called to quietly reject those things and not follow their husbands into sin. Their response to be quietly submitting so that so that their husbands might repent. You know, Peter, who's addressing this guy, he also wrote in 1 Peter Chapter 3, we can read right here where Peter's talking to wives. 
where he says right here, like wives, be subject to your husbands, said even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He says in verse 2, chapter 3, when they see you respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, but the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's something we're trying to teach our daughters already, at least our oldest one. The youngest one, there's not so much we can teach right now except just to quit spitting. But I've, we, we, we really want to teach them that because have you ever been around just a loud and wayward woman around 9 o'clock, around in a restaurant, you can find them. They're just loud and wayward. And you know what's going on. They don't have any male leadership in their lives or true leadership. When I say loud and wayward, I know, you know if you're having a good time, you can be loud. Come on. But what I mean is they're loud. They're loose with their tongue. You can hear the gossip. You can hear everything. And they're wayward, meaning they're just living in sin. And it's just obvious. And that results in it stems from not having a father who loved them, not having somebody come alongside them, or perhaps even somebody in the church just to see that and to pull them aside like a father and love that person who doesn't have a father figure in their lives. So we see also money is the means and not the end, and we must discern the two because money is a means to an end, which is the glory of God. Whew. I don't think we're going to finish today, which is okay. So you might have to wait till somebody takes the other part, which is so fire. But I'll just we'll just give the general for today and the general truths that we need to pull from. Uh, one is this: Sapphira, she tests the spirits, verse seven through eleven. So we see here the testing of the spirit by Sapphira. So an, an, an interval of around three hours takes place. In other words, there's a break. Sapphira comes in with no knowledge of what took place. She doesn't know that her husband's dead. She's been looking for him, probably. She's been saying, where is my husband? You know, we got all this money. I thought we we're going to go to Paris, you know. Probably not Paris, but, you know, we're going to go to Smyrna or something and live it up. But he's not anywhere around because he's dead. And the judgment of God has just fallen on him. But she doesn't know that. So she comes in. And of course, Peter, and there's probably members of the church who've already known it. They're probably already gathered inside wherever they're at. And her blatant continuance in sin is just hideous to Peter. I mean, it's just grotesque. And he quotes the exact amount, and she confirms it with no remorse. It's like, did you sell the land for a thousand hands? Yeah, I sold it for a thousand hands. What? What? What's the problem here? And the rhetorical question Peter gives only confirms that he was saddened by their actions as a married couple. I think the tone that Peter gives is loving. It's more of, I'm just saddened that the glory of God and the name of God has been defamed. And the people in Jerusalem know about this. That's why it's important uh, when you live in community in the body of Christ, that you live in such a way to glorify God because outsiders of the church will know about it. That's why it's important for accountability for all of us to hold one another accountable to our lifestyles, what we do, because people on the outside will know about it. Yeah, the people from Bakashiri, they don't care about people living in sin. You can go to clubs or you can do whatever you want, live a lifestyle that's contrary to things of God or a lifestyle that doesn't reflect the gospel because the community as a whole probably doesn't care. That's how important it is for accountability and responsibility for one another's lives. 
But here we see why does Peter believe she's testing the Spirit of God instead of really lying to God? Well, I think he's just phrasing it in such a way or paraphrasing it. And, and when it's saying lying to God, it's testing God to see whether he will do what he says he will do. So Peter's saying to her, Sapphira, you thought that God wasn't going to do what he said he was going to do, but now he is. So what does he say here? He says, it's that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord, behold the feet of those, the people who buried your husband. Guess what? They're going to carry you out as well. So you notice here is in the two, two accounts with Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira, they both drop dead by the judgment of God. Now, how does that happen? Peter doesn't say, you're dead, and that's it. No, that God does that. In the Old Testament, if somebody were to commit a sin or hideous crime that would be against the law of God, what would happen? Typically a stoning, which that it sounds like a really brutal death to me. You know, people just throwing rocks at you until you basically die. I mean, that sounds brutal to me. But they don't do a stoning here. We see in this community, this new community of faith that's being formed from, from uh, by the Jesus' blood, is that this new community is being formed by the judgment of God and is being protected by the holiness of God and His own fame. So we see here what Kistemacher says, which is a good this is a good commentary. It's, here's a case of God's judgment taking immediate effect. Scripture reveals similar incidences where God punished sinners with sudden death. You remember Nadab and Abihu, uh, Aaron's sons, where they uh, presented fire that God had not prescribed. So Nadab and Abihu, they're like breathing fire, and God's like, that's not the fire I'm talking about. Boom, you're dead. So he strikes them with fire, so they die instantly. and says, this is the fire I'm talking about, and they die instantly. Well, we find that in Leviticus. So when Uzzah tried to steady the ark that was placed in the ox cart, well, guess what happens? He dies suddenly. And it's like, whoa, God's judgment is really sharp and stern here. Well, God strikes him dead. When we look in Samuel 6-7, we see that happening in 2 Samuel. But God's verdict against Ananias and Sapphira also resulted in swift execution. What's the point here? Is that God cares, the whole pattern of Old Testament and New Testament is what God cares about His holiness and His fame. He cares about what's going on. He cares about the purity of the church. He cares very much that we deal with sin in a loving, in a confronting manner that honors His name. And we see that right here. The effect of Ananias and Sapphira's death, it left the people, as it says here, in awe. And they were stunned. And great fear fell upon them because of this. If I was in a Igreja Universal Church, if I was in one of those fellowships, and I heard one of those preachers saying uh, something false, and then profiting off of that, and then God striking that person dead, literally with fire, I would believe in the true gospel. Now, your question, my question probably today in this context in Brazil would be, why hasn't God struck all these false teachers dead so that all those who are seeing what's going on <coughs> put their faith and trust in the gospel as a result? I don't know that answer. It's a mystery to me. But we've seen here a sign and wonder being done through the power of God. And that Ananias and Sapphira, who had decided to test the Spirit of God, 
by lying to God as well, living in a lifestyle contrary to God's word and contrary to the unity of the gospel and community, we're seeing God's judgment being struck upon their lives. And we're seeing the community respond. Now, what would that tell us? It would tell us that God takes sin seriously. So there might be some sin in here in in your lives today that you're not dealing with. Maybe it's perhaps you, you are a habitual liar. You have a habit of lying. You don't like to tell the truth because you care more about what people think about you than what God thinks. Perhaps maybe you are living in sin in regards to not taking care of yourself physically. Perhaps you're living in sin in regards to truly just being a gossiper. And participating in the things that don't glorify God. Perhaps you are not careful with your eyes. And your thought life is on things that you shouldn't be thinking about continuously. And you care more about those things than you do about God and His glory and who He's created you to be, which is a worshiper. And I think we need to take sin seriously. I believe that it's, it's, it's sincerely something we need to wrestle with on a daily basis. So, here... In the in our in our uh, in our understanding of Ananias and Sapphira, we see two things: God, He takes His word and His and His and His holiness seriously, and He also asks us as a community of believers to take our lives corporately together seriously. And I think there's some gospel reasons for change here that we need to wrestle with. One is that we must not lie to God through our actions or words. God must be the center of our worship. And, the, and then what we call the access by which our world spins. We must not lie to God through our actions or words. We must be truthful with who we are. We're sinners. We're in need of a Savior. We need to ask the Lord as David says, Search my heart. Test me. Know everything within my heart. Search the deep things. We must not test the Spirit of God. Our repentance reveals our humility in the gospel. And it moves us closer to the Spirit versus farther away. Three, our sinful actions that we try to hide, God will expose starting with His Word and then with the community. So if you think I can hide my sin away from uh, from God, God will expose it through the Scriptures. You've been through those moments where you thought, God is really speaking to me right now. Why? Because I see the same Scriptures over and over again. The Holy Spirit's revealing it. And if you reject that, eventually the body of Christ is going to come along. And it's going to test you. And it's going to prove you. And it's going to mold you and shape you into the image of Christ. And if you reject the body of Christ, eventually God's going to say, you're not part of me. You're not part of the community because you've rejected. And you weren't one of us. Because First John, John is very poignant about basics for believers in First John where he says, they left us because they weren't among us anyway to begin with. Because the Spirit of God hadn't transformed their lives. Uh, we should be in awe of who God is and how seriously He loves His name and glory. Our giving of our resources is not meant to try to earn our salvation, but it reflects our salvation through the act of giving and serving. And two practical, more I think more practical things on a more, for today is that men need to lead their families with integrity and wives must recognize in love the leadership failures of their husbands. And I said in love. And I really mean that in that we need to be aggressive as husbands and fathers in leading our families well. But as wives, really submitting well in the gospel, quietly, but in love, recognizing where there is a failure. 
And in love, not so I mean in love, not going at the moment of crisis and saying this is what's going on, this is what's wrong, but going at a time where you can really rationally talk and say, in love, this is where I see sin in our lives together. This is where I see sin in your leadership. Please lead me. Please lead our family. Because that's what I believe God wants for us as a church is that men leading families and men leading the church and the things of God. So this is a heavy, heavy text. And these are heavy verses because we see the pronouncement of the judgment of God. We see God judging two people's actions. And we see the community of God responding in awe and fear of who God is and what God will do. So let's, let's take that seriously in how we live our lives and how well we bond together as the body of Christ.